Hi, I'm Larry Jurovich, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 107 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Molle, your host. This week, I speak to Larry Jurovich. Larry worked back in Ireland back in the early 2000s and ran a great program here. Two of the players we've actually had on the show. He tells us about his time in Ireland, working with the LTA and Louis Kaye, launching his third club in Canada, playing international ice hockey for Ireland, and also software he has in the pipeline for tennis clubs. Before we get started, a shout out to our podcast sponsors, Slinger, who make the great portable ball machine. Head over to slingerbag.com to find out all about it. Okay, here we go. Hi, Larry. Welcome to the Function Tennis Podcast. Thanks, Fabio. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you on. Uh, we've had you mentioned in a few of our previous shows, but actually with both Irish Jameses, uh, they both mentioned you heavily in the show. So it's great to finally speak to you. And I was disappointed to hear you didn't remember me from the Westwood days in Dublin. But look, my tennis wasn't exceptional like those guys. So that's understandable. But tell me, how is life in Canada? Everything's been going great. Yeah, at some point I've felt even a little bit guilty, if I'm honest, as I've seen all the struggles with everybody, whether that's in their health or their business with COVID. But um, for our perspective, we were the only one of the only sports that didn't get shut down. And so a lot, we, we had our busiest year ever. A lot of people that might have been playing other sports throughout the year funneled towards tennis. And and uh, we've been really busy both on the court. And and uh, I used that time to, to build our third location. So between construction and coaching, it's been uh, incredibly busy, but a lot of fun. Tell me, before we talk about your backstory in Ireland and then what you've been up since then, which was, you're telling me, 2000 and 2000 onwards, you mentioned there are three locations. Tell me about your locations and your opening new location. Where about in Canada are they and what sort of players do you work with? We're probably best to say greater Vancouver. So we opened our first location in a town called Surrey, which is just south of Vancouver. And then our second location, that was in 2015. And then we opened our second location in 2017 in Coquitlam, which is another Vancouver suburb. And then we just opened in April in Langley. It's been a, it's been a really neat ride because Surrey is where my family lives ever since we moved home from England. And so we kind of built a new center right by our house. And then my wife uh, grew up in Coquitlam and I grew up in Langley. So we've kind of um, built a company in and around our, our upbringings. And uh, it's been great. With respect to the players, you know, the, the clubs are very busy. Um, we have about 500 juniors and 200 adults per facility that's taking this training all the time. So in the whole club, we are taking care of everybody from beginning red ball players up till seniors and league play and everything in between. I spend my court time with our more performance-oriented juniors. So I'm working with a, a good group of kids that would be competing at a national level. The last, the last nationals that we could have before COVID shut us down. We had a couple of kids finishing the top five and winning provincial championships, that kind of stuff. So that's where I spend my court time. So yeah, it's a good mix. So it's a club. There are clubs really where you have a general mix like any clubs. And it's great to have the grassroots players coming all the way through. It must be great, like you've been coaching a while now, to see players graduate from young kids to juniors to the professional game. How does that make you feel as a coach? Well, that's 
to some degree, that's why we do it. You know, it's so much about relationship and you're building these relationships with not only the players, but their families. And it's fantastic to see these kids grow. We, we've we got um, one player who won the provincial championships just before COVID closed that started in our red ball program. So it's so cool to introduce somebody to tennis, put a racket in their hand for their first time, and then see them work their way through uh, to being really good tennis players. And we have a vision for homegrown Grand Slam champions. And that's really uh, sort of one of the fundamental reasons we're doing what we do. What is your club called? Uncreative when it comes to naming things. And so our business is called The Tennis Centre. And so it's uh, it's just that. The Tennis Centre is spelled the Canadian way. C-N-T-R-E. Well, look, that's what people would search for in Google who want to play tennis. They search for Tennis Centre. They won't know the names of any. So from a Google <laughs> perspective, that's actually quite good. But any of the players that you've worked with in, in the past or maybe still work with on the tour at the moment, I know you did mention to me Sharon Fickman, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago. You worked with her at one stage. And is there anybody you're still working with or any other names that we might know? No, I don't think so. You know, when when we moved back here and built the club, it was a real um, conscious effort to put all of our attention locally and try to build up our program and our business. And so I've really uh, removed myself from any of that international travel or international scene just as as a need to put all, all your effort into a brand new business like we've had. But um, now that we're sort of through that beginning infancy stage and, and growing, then uh, I'm looking for a few different opportunities. And that's why it's so great to be able to talk to you today. Nice. Well, any, do we have any opportunities we should know about or anything pressing happening? Uh, well, now I just feel like a shameless plug, but yeah, I guess we're, uh, we're moving our, what we would just say, in-house academy that we've been running for the last six years. And, and it's, it's been good. You know, as far as the local academy goes, we've had numerous players that have gone down to division one scholarships and a few that have a couple ATP points and provincial champions and good national level players, like I said. But one of the hard things about running an academy in Western Canada is that, you know, there's just not a strong enough population base here to have the mix of players that you'd really need. And so, so we're making a big effort now. We're uh, rebranding our academy. It's called the P3 Tennis Academy, which stands for People, Passion, Performance. And the goal is to start bringing in some international players and also to be taking our team more international now that they are at the level that they can compete that way and just try to, uh, you know, attract players to Vancouver. It's such a such a beautiful place to live, that's for sure. Uh, but it's a little bit far out of the way as a tennis scene. So we, we need to do a really good job to make it worthwhile for people to come to the academy. So so that's probably the biggest new initiative. Nice. So that's, that's a big undertaking. And name change, that's a, that's always a big undertaking. But is there many tournaments around the area? I know you say it's on the west of Canada, but from players who want to play tournaments at the higher level, is there much going on there? Or how close are you to uh, tournaments in the US? Tennis Canada has done a really good job to develop the competitive structure in Canada over the last number of years. Now, it's going to be interesting to see how that all unfolds as we're you know moving out of this COVID time. But we do have a number of junior ITFs in and around Vancouver and BC, along with a couple now 10,000s and things like this, or 15,000s. And then probably the premier event is the Oldland Brown, which has always been a combined uh, men's and women's event. I think, I don't know what the most recent iteration of it is, is something like 
a hundred thousand dollars for each event, and uh, that's that's been a, a great event over the years. It's got, a, got quite a who's who of of players that have come through that. So so yeah, whether it's junior ITFs or or the you know, entry level pro events, right up to the hundred thousand, there's a pretty good competitive structure here. Nice, very nice. And I know from speaking to both James's and from hearing the stories of other players that you built up quite a good culture back when you worked in Dublin, Ireland, back between 2000 and 2004. And like, I don't, I don't think th- those players you worked with all did quite well from an Irish tennis perspective. For you, like what's important in culture in club, academy? And yeah, tell me. When I was young, I was, I was exposed to a sports psychologist named David Cox and he taught that simple lesson. I think it's, it's a pretty obvious one that says you should deal with things that you have control over. And so I've always anchored my program around certain values. We say sportsmanship, effort, and courage are what we could call our on-court values and then respect, contribution, and gratitude is our off-court values. And, and um, you know, I know a lot of people live or have value statements on a wall, but I, I really feel like we're able to live by those. And when we do that, it creates quite a family feeling because not only are you guys all, everybody in the program is pushing towards the same goal, but they're doing it in the same way. And so it really becomes a family. You know, those, those years in Ireland are some of the best in my life. That's for sure. I have such fond memories of that. And not only were we on the court with the guys, but, you know, you talked about the Jameses or Dara, any of these kids, like we were good friends with our family. We we're having family dinners together. We we're going to movies, that kind of thing. And so it's just nice when, when it goes past the on-court piece. And, you know, there's that saying that people care what you know when they know that you care. And I think that's what it comes down to is we just try to create a really friendly, caring family environment, uh, take care of the kids and the families. It's interesting. I'll even say this. A lot of times when I used to speak on the sort of coaching speaking circuit, there seemed like every conference I went to, there was some speaker there. He's usually a PhD, a psychologist or something that would talk about how to deal with problem parents. And I always laughed because I, I never really saw parents as a problem. I always saw them as a, a great part of the solution. And, and we always befriended the parents and the families of the kids that we're working with. So it just became one big group and, and we had a lot of fun. Like James Kleski's dad would always make me laugh. Kevin would, he would be so upset because he said that James would never eat a fry up until I started to work with him. And then James was so scrawny. I said, James, you got to eat everything. So you eat whatever you need to eat to bulk up a little bit. And uh, and so Kevin would always give him a hard time that he would listen to, to me and not him. But uh, that's the kind of stuff that takes it from being just tennis lessons into a real academy family. Nice, nice. The parents I knew the most from back then was maybe Dermot Lachlan's dad, Ray, who was a really nice man. Yeah, Ray, Ray's a legend, of course. So I, you'd have to know Ray. I couldn't say enough about... I, in fact, I would say I don't think we could have lasted in four years in Ireland, although we loved the country. It had nothing to do with being in Ireland as much as the fact that my wife was too afraid to drive there. Uh, you know, the, the roads and the other side of the road and that sort of thing. And my kids were so young. My, my daughters were one and two years old when we moved to Ireland. And so Ray would, while I was coaching and, and working uh, really hard over at Westwood, Ray would be picking up my wife and kids and taking them to doctor's appointments for me. And uh, for the first year when I was living out in Malahide, he would drive me home after work every day. I didn't have a car yet. Ray was an absolute legend. That whole program wouldn't have existed without everything that he did for us. Nice. No, no, that's really nice. And as I said, I only hear good stories about those days. And you were in the UK then. You worked with the LTA. You worked with Louis Kaye. Was that after Ireland or before? It was after, yeah. So I left Ireland at the 
end of 2004 and moved to Toronto. And so I was running a club and working with Tennis Canada from basically 2005 to 2007. And then we decided that we'd go back the other direction again. And I took that job with the LTA in 2007. And what exactly were you doing with the LTA? Uh, well, the, the job evolved quickly, but eventually I was called the head of performance management and coach education. And so the Lawn Tennis Association at the time had about 30 centers across the UK that were being funded to be part of like the high performance junior pathway. And it was my job to sort of support those centers. I'd go and visit them and see which way I could help the coaches. You know, it's one of those things when you're in 30 great centers, you're learning as much from them as they are from you, that's for sure. Uh, but that was a really great experience to, to see what the top centers across the UK were doing and to be able to support them in some small way. And then with respect to the coach education, as people often do, I guess I went in there and I implemented a program that was much closer to what Tennis Canada was doing because I've, I've got a good friend, uh, Ari Novak that runs the Tennis Canada Coach Ed program. And I was always really impressed with what they did. So we we put together a system where there was essentially a dual stream coach education where you could train as a coach working in player development or or more as a club pro working in, in how to manage and run clubs. And so we redesigned that entire coach education structure, which meant all new curriculums for the coaches and training the tutors and all that sort of stuff. So, so yeah, it was a lot of uh, club management and coach education. Is that Chris Suter's job now? I'm not sure. If, I, I know Chris is involved. In fact, Chris, uh, I was... I was the one that first brought him in to be a tutor. How, how could you not? He has such great passion and knowledge for the game. And so he started to tutor at the time that I was there. And uh, to be honest with you, I haven't really kept in contact. So I'm not, I'm not sure where his role has gotten to, but he was definitely on the team when I was there. Yeah, we had him on. He was one of the earlier guests of the podcast when we first started, but he said he was a master performance tutor or coach. And I think that he goes around from club to club and holds these coaching education for all the centres in Britain. So, so he may have your old job there. Yeah. Never joke with Chris about the fact that they don't like Scottish pounds in England. He doesn't like that joke very much. I know. I think that came <laughs> up, actually. I think that came up. He's, uh, Chris is a great guy and puts out some good content and understands players in the game really well. But you worked with Louis Kaye. And Louis Kaye is somebody I'd love to get on the podcast. I know he's done so well with, from what I know, from all the English or British, sorry again, from all the British doubles players who at one stage, I think seven or eight players in the top 100, maybe even more. And people love what he does. What did you learn from Louis? Well, that would be an entire podcast, just that question, if I'm honest with you, Fabio. You know, Louis, I went, it's much further than working with Louis. You know, Louis was a mentor of mine since I was a young coach and has become one of my closest friends. I, I really uh, look back with disappointment that he asked me to be the best man at his wedding and I couldn't make it because I was coaching on the Rogers Cup in Toronto at the time. But yeah, we're, we're super close. I still chat with Louis every chance I get. So um, what do you learn from Louis? Everything. You know, the foundation of my coaching is all based around Louis's, um, you know, Louis's methodology. I'm obviously biased, but as far as I'm concerned, it's the most uh, sort of complete methodology that you could uh, work with. I don't know, you know how to say that. I don't, I don't want to sound like too much of a fanboy, but the real, realistically, the guy's so intelligent. He's the hardest working coach I've ever met, you know, back before it was easy to be videoing matches and taking stats. He was employing people just to do that before there was ever dartfish and things that, you know, so he was always taking a real scientific approach to things. Um, the stuff that's normal now, I think is normal because Louis put those things in place. So whether or not it's his coaching ability, he's got such a great eye, a feel and ability to improve people. Um, but, you know, just like it is with most people, it's really who he is. He's such a hard worker and such an intelligent guy that cares so much for 
the for the players he's working with. There's no doubt that uh, he's absolutely turned around British doubles. You know, it's, it's stuff of legend, I guess, what he's achieved there. But really, anytime I've seen him get involved in something, it's always thrive. So it doesn't surprise me one bit. Nice. Well, I hope to have him on. We can hear more. Let him, let him talk about maybe he'll give us some of his double strategy or his doubles chart and tips, unless they're secret only to his players. No, I don't think they will be. You know, Louis's always been really open about sharing things. He's a, he's a real educator at heart. And in the end, you know, the information is so easy nowadays. Everything is online. So it's not really about information. Information is about implementation. So as much as you could learn all of his theories, it would take a lifetime to be able to implement it the way he has. <laughs> nice, nice. This podcast is brought to you by ASICS Tennis. ASICS is a Japanese company founded in 1949 with the purpose of giving more people the opportunity to experience how sport and movement can have a positive impact on mental well-being. They just launched their most innovative tennis range ever. Get the new Cord FF3 Novak or Gel Resolution 9 at ASICS.com. ASICS Tennis have also just launched their new Cord FF3 Novak, the only tennis shoe designed with Novak Djokovic input. To learn more about ASICS, visit their website www.asics.com. And come back to Ireland quickly. You played ice hockey for Ireland. Yeah, it's one of my great, uh, great stories that I can still tell. I've got a, a national jersey hanging in my TV room, which I had to steal after our last tournament. So uh, the, the quickest possible version of the story is that I, I was a relatively good hockey player, uh, not by Canadian standards, pretty average, but uh, but overall not bad. And my wife was actually a national champion figure skater. And so one year that we were living in Ireland, we saw an advertisement for outdoor Santa's grotto ice rink that they put down like right down in the middle of town. And so I phoned up my mom and asked her to send over our skates. And my wife and I went out skating there. And obviously, we're the only ones that could skate. I got to tell you, I actually, I took our whole team there. I took our whole team one day for, and afterwards I was like, well, that was probably a bit of a, a bad idea because you had the, the more passive kids in the academy hanging onto the side boards, like doing everything they could to stand up. And then you have James McGee, that is, you know, with his personality skating as fast as he possibly could and jumping over people that had fallen down, even though he's got blades going right by their faces. And I really felt like we dodged a bullet to not get anybody seriously hurt there. But, uh, bottom line was after going there and and, and talking to the guys that were running the ice rink, it turned out that they were members of the Irish Republic um, National Ice Hockey Federation. And so they told me they were practicing after everybody went home at night. So I'd go down, it was so surreal. I'd go down in the middle of Dublin and play outdoor hockey at about 11 p.m. till one in the morning. And after a few weeks of doing that, they were saying, oh, we wish you were Irish because we had, we're going to the world championships in Iceland in a couple months. I said, I am Irish, I, I've got an Irish passport. And so I switched my uh, hockey card over to uh, playing for Ireland and I ended up playing two world championships where the one in Reykjavik and one in Mexico City. That's brilliant. I had no idea on that ice hockey team. That's great. It's unbelievable to play for, for your country. Whatever you do, never go skating with McGee. He's dangerous. He's dangerous. Uh, he's in the States now, so no chance. And it is summertime, so I'll watch out for it. But maybe Klusky. Uh, I hope he may have improved a little bit. Do you still keep in contact with any of the Irish guys? Yeah, the two Jameses all the time. I was talking to both of them over the last 
couple of weeks. You know, James McGee is over there in, in Vegas and it sounds like he's taking part in something that's really uh, meaningful. And I know he's loving his work. So I would love to get him up here and working with our organization. But uh, so far, he's he's got too much of a good thing going on down there. And uh, James Kluski, it's been amazing. You know, when, when he first finished playing and he told me he was going to go into business and I said, what are you going to do, James? He said, I'm not sure yet. I just want to be in business. And uh, I thought that was kind of funny because I always had the what I wanted to do as far as coaching goes, but I just didn't know how I was going to do it. But uh, he wanted to be this business guy. And I know that he tried a couple of different things. And uh, in the end, he's, he's come across this this you know business that he's doing now and it seems just phenomenal success it's so it's so cool to see how well the guys are doing you know like as a coach you hope that you play a part in laying the foundation for those type of successes but in the end uh it's just such a yeah, hard work by them they're, they're they're great guys absolutely love all of them nice and just a couple more questions you worked in ireland you did a great job with those group of players they're all i know some went some went pro did quite well some went to college in the states and others are just really good players and good people as well like not only good tennis players but Canada also has done so well. Some great players coming through uh, between Felix, uh, Dennis and, you know, there's a mixed range of players there and I'm sure there's more coming through. But what can a coach do or an academy do when, let's say, a federation isn't big enough, doesn't provide enough help? Like, is there any advice there you can offer to? I'm going to use Ireland for an example, but it's not the only federation that may struggle financially. What advice do you have? Well, I don't know if I would be bold enough to give advice to a federation. You know, what I do know from the different jobs I've had, whether that was in the LTA and Tennis China, which are obviously incredibly wealthy organizations to just small clubs or smaller countries, is that everybody has an excuse right? You know, the, the, the British at some point would be saying, oh, it's hard to develop tennis players when the kids are so spoiled and they come from these middle class families and they have no heart like the Serbians that are growing up training in pools and things, um, you know, and then you listen to other countries and they say, well, we don't have the money to develop players. In the end, you know, player development is so much around just passion and hard work and, and belief. I, I really believe that the missing ingredient in Ireland for so long was belief. And that's why it's such a cool stepping stone for for the James is to do as well as they did. And obviously Connor was doing well before that, but uh, you just want to have a system where the players believe it's possible. You know, I, I mentioned that as an average hockey player by Canadian standards, that's probably a pretty good one by international standards. But when you grew up in a country that's known for producing the best hockey players, you just, you, you know, that's, that's the belief of where you're going. And so there's obviously traditional tennis countries that have the belief they can do it. And sure, they've got resources, but I don't think the resources are necessarily the key to the success. I really think it's just hard work, belief, you know, even when you look, you talk about the Canadian kids, it all started off, I think, with probably Milos breaking through and then Jeannie. And then soon after that is Felix and Dennis and Bianca. And so it just starts to become more and more of a of a belief system where in the past, you know, Canadians might not have believed it was possible. So I don't know if that's a great answer, but I, but I really believe it comes down to hard work and belief more than it does to Federation funding. And if I'm really honest with you, Fabio, you know, we loved working in Ireland. And the main reason I left was because the Federation decided to get involved. You know, so one, once Tennis Ireland decided to open up a, a national center for themselves and, you know, the Dara was off to Indiana and James was leaving Kluski that is for LSU and McGee was not, you know, he was only one year behind them. And I started to think like, man, if the Federation is going to start taking all the best young kids here, uh, you know, this isn't a place that I want to work. And I don't think that the Federations need to be involved, if I'm honest. If it was really up to me, I think the Federations would focus their efforts on growing the sport 
support on grassroots, on supporting clubs and coaches, and then uh, allowing the the clubs and coaches to build the relationships with the kids to, to do the work. So I don't know. That's a political landmine, that question. But I, but I don't think it takes a lot of money and I don't think it takes a lot of federation support. I know that's probably counter countercultural statement at this point, but uh, I don't think that has to be the way. No, I personally think it takes a mixture of everything. But as you say, it's surrounding yourself with people with positive attitude and then belief also helps. So yeah, your answer passed the test. <laughs> but finally, do your daughters play tennis? Well, they both played tennis when they were very young, but by the time they were 12 or 13, they were already sort of moving away from it. So my older daughter got to be number two in BC in our province at under 12. And then at under 14, uh, she had kind of taken a step back and then a further step back. So they played when they're young, but, but not a lot as they got older. That said, our business is a real family business. My mother runs our front desk and all of our accounting and my father does the maintenance. And my older daughter that I was just mentioning is um, actually the operations manager of one of our facilities. And so she's still involved in tennis. And my younger daughter, who also played a lot of tennis, is now completely out of it. She got her psychology degree and she's uh, got a great job um, supporting people in that way. Brilliant, brilliant. And last question, James McGee told me to ask you, he says you're a big reader. What books do you recommend? It's something I maybe should ask more on with all our guests and I have from time to time, but maybe you can tell me one or two of your favorite books. Well, it, yeah, I, I do read a lot and uh, it would be hard to say favorite books. I'd have to put a lot of thought into that. I'll tell you an interesting story. I know you didn't ask for a story, but that's the Irish part of me. We love stories. Tennis Canada has a system that they call tennis development centers. And so when I first started to coach tennis, was, which was legitimately falling into it, I didn't play competitive tennis. Uh, I just wanted to be a coach. And, and I thought I was going to be a hockey coach because that was my main sport. I loved working with kids and the idea of helping people reach their goals. I always figured it'd be hockey, but it turned out to be tennis. And um, so I fell into a job at a little club right in my hometown that happened to be one of these tennis kind of tennis development centers. And so Louis Kaye would do these support visits where he'd come out twice a year and come and see us. And so that was the first time I met him. I was 18 or 19 years old. And then one time I said to him, look, I'm going through my certification courses and it seems to me that there's not a lot in these courses to do with sports psychology. It's all technical, tactical, physical. So how am I going to develop that knowledge? Because I understood that to be so important. And Louis said, well, here's a list of, I think it was 12 books at the time. He said, you know, read these books. This is where I got a lot of my information. So I read those and then I saw them about a month or two later. And I said, Louis, you know, how am I going to get more information on the psychology? He says, well, you got to read those 12 books. I said, well, I did. I read those 12 books. And uh, he told me years later, that was the reason why some young hockey player with almost no tennis background, he, he chose to take me under his wing and mentor me because I was so diligent in my reading. So anybody who says reading won't get you anywhere, I can tell you, it got me everywhere. But the exact answer to your question, instead of my favorite books, I'll tell you uh, my most recent books. Uh, because that's more in my mind. Um, I heard, I can't remember if it, it might have been Gary Cathill when I was listening to him on your podcast was talking about black box thinking. That's an absolutely fantastic book. That was one of my, that's probably my favorite book since Outliers. I really enjoyed that book. Um, but I've also read recently, uh, it was, uh, it was a bit off the, uh, beaten path with my normal book choices, but somebody had recommended me The Prince by uh, Machiavelli, which was a crazy book. That's a leadership book from the 1500s. And uh, it was quite dark compared to modern leadership strategy. I tell you, there's a lot of talk of things like 
would you rather be uh, loved or feared? Uh, and, and things like that, which is pretty interesting. Uh, but like anything, it's so cool to to hear anybody's point of view on leadership. So I think The Prince by Machiavelli and Black Box Thinking were the last two books I've read and uh, I got a lot out of both of them. Nice. Well, Larry, thank you very much. Enjoyed chatting to you and I wish you all the success with the rebrand and the new club. And thank you very much. Fabio, can I mention one more thing? You can indeed. You talk about the rebrand. You know, the, the one thing that we're doing, as I mentioned, now that the our home environment is set up in a way that we want it to be. And, you know, the deeper story, I'm going to go a little bit off track here. I hope I'm not taking too much of your time. But realistically, if I link to my answer, your, my philosophical answer of your federation question is that one of our big driving forces behind building this business was that we want to make sure that we can, you know, support players from beginning to the end of the player pathway. We know how expensive that is. And so we realized that we would need an infrastructure with three clubs and, you know, the years that we put into developing a really good coaching team. We've now got a fantastic coaching staff and we've got the financial backing that we can support players that need to be supported. And realistically, we just wanted to make sure that players that we developed didn't need to go outside and look for federations support that they could be completely uh, supported within our academy. So bottom line is that every every decision we made has been geared around developing a coaching team and infrastructure and the financial ability to develop players. And one of the latest things that we're doing is we're sort of developing another business stream, a, a revenue stream, I guess, to try to keep building this business and make it capable for these players. And so I'm launching a new business called Tennis Management Services. Just jumping in here, Larry let me know that he made a mistake with his new venture name. It's actually called Tennis Management Solutions. And if you go to the website, it's at tennismanagementsolutions.ca. And that is basically just using my 30 years of experience to support clubs. We've developed some really great software for club management software for people that are uh, looking for some solutions for that way. But also just whether somebody's looking to build a new club, we've now got experience in that or just programming their club or training their coaches. So, uh, you know, it's a really exciting project that we've, that we've been putting together to just keep building our business and our ability to make a positive impact in the kids that we see. Nice. Well, wish you all the success with building software is never an easy thing. But so I hope that goes well and maybe I'll see it in the club at some stage. Thanks, Fabio. Hope you enjoyed that chat with Larry. Great catching up with him, even though if he didn't remember me from back in the Westwood days. But I'll be back next week. And until then, goodbye. <laughs>